Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. To the Tesh Talks podcast. Thank you for having me. You're blending uh, in with the wall, I've just realised. Well, you are you know like, what it well, is? Body. No, you're absolutely right. <laughs> and uh, what I've noticed is that either I've started dressing like my HMOs or I already like these colours and now I'm applying I them think to you're the dressing HMOs. like the HMOs. But that I think it's like owners and their dogs, like they sort yeah. of start to kind of look the same after a while, you know? It is. For anyone who's not watching this on YouTube and listening, Roland is literally wearing the exact Farron Ball shade. That is on the wall, like the, I'm like, like the exact. Actually, yeah, yeah, I'm basically a floating head. <laughs> you are a floating head. My first floating head interview. So, welcome to the podcast. Um, Thank you. you invest in London. Now, Hello. this is going to be really interesting for people because some of the returns you get, some of the money you pull out, and the deals and the way they're structured, people just don't know exist in London, right? right. A lot of people invest in live in London and say, oh, I've got to go up north to get fifty mm. percent to get that. No, I've got to go north, got to go east, west, whatever. Yeah. But you're doing this in zone three. Yeah, south and 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 slightly further out as well, zone four as well. And this so. is southwest London, right? This is southwest, so this is kind of like yeah, on the border. It's sort of the SW postcode, but it's you know on the borders of probably South London really. And then I've got some others that are sort of a little bit further south towards Croydon. So Amazing. it's all Greater London, yeah. So before you got into property, before you did all this wonderful stuff, before you were bricks and daughters, yeah. What what were you doing before? So my, the majority of my sort of corporate career. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so he's explaining what's going on here. Yeah, he's explaining what's going on. Right. So the house is finished, but unfortunately today happens to be snagging day. So there are some trades on site. Um, that was Barry. But as anyone who's seen the photos will know, it is finished. We are in a finished house. It is gorgeous. I'm Barry is just nice to plumber and some few other guys on site. Anyway, back to the back to the answer. So I uh, yeah, most of my career was spent in investment banking. So graduated in two thousand and five. I went into strategy consulting initially. I worked for a, uh, sort of a global company in their London office for two years. And then I moved into investment banking after that. Um, so I was basically doing M&A and a bit of capital raising for oil and gas companies. Mm-hmm. All of my clients were oil and gas companies. Um, and I spent 10 years in the same bank doing the same thing. Effectively. Did you enjoy it? Um, I... Well, I can't enjoy that much because I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> but you know, to be fair, I did enjoy it initially. And I think that like a lot of things, you know, whatever you're doing at the beginning when you're mastering a new thing, it's, it's interesting in and of itself because you're learning. There comes a point, obviously, where kind of the learning curve flattens out and you're more just kind of executing stuff that you already know how to do. And maybe it starts to become a bit less interesting after that. Um I think for me, ultimately, it was more the kind of the the lifestyle associated with that job more than the work itself that was the issue. Um, the work itself was um, occasionally, you know, quite enjoyable and quite interesting. And you know, you're always dealing with smart people at the end of the day, which is which is good. But the um, you know the hours, the um, sort of being always on, being always available to client. Yeah, it is a, it's a client service business. Um, the clients are demanding, as they have every right to be. 
Um, there's a lot of travel involved. So, you know, whilst I suppose, you know, in my 20s, I was kind of okay with trading time for money and like, like my beating around the bush, it's a well-paid job. But as I think when we started to have kids, that was basically when, you know, the way that I valued my own time starts to change a bit. Mm. And so I became sort of less enamoured with, you know, the source of, yeah, the amount of time I'm to be spending away from the family and, uh, yeah, not really sort of being able to be kind of like the sort of father or husband you kind of want to be. Um, so that was when I started to think about change. And what led you to property? Because, of course, there's a million and one things you could do, a million and one businesses related to your job or unrelated. Yeah. What, why property? So I actually started another business before I sort of started in property. Um, the first property investment I made was sort of like running side by side, but the property was kind of like the side hustle and the, new, the mm. other business was the main thing. Um, so, you know, yeah, I started up another business. It was sort of in the nutrition health space. Um, it was something I was very interested and passionate about, but not something that I knew a great deal about, and particularly not how to actually execute that sort of business model, um, which sort of relies quite heavily upon you know, marketing, particularly digital marketing. Um, so I, yeah, I probably, when I look back now on that, I think I probably sort of slightly rushed into that because when you, you know, when you decided you're sort of quitting your job and you're definitely wanting to do something else, you know, you feel quite a bit of pressure to know what the next thing is. Mm. And I probably didn't sort of, you know, being completely honest, sort of like look at all of my options in enough detail before deciding on what I wanted to do next. So I started that business. You know, after a while, I came to realise that actually it was not going to be the sort of business that I wanted to run. Like it was going to require a lot more capital than I originally thought. Um, and with that sort of a business, you know, which is like I've got this idea. If you want to raise money, then you're issuing equity. Mm. You know, you're bringing in shareholders. You're diluting yourself. Um, you know, you need to start building a team. It wasn't actually what I wanted. What I wanted was to be sort of a solo entrepreneur. Um, you know, and through doing my first property project, which was an HMO, which I'll get onto, you know, what I realised is actually like property is quite a practical thing for solo entrepreneurs. Like people who want yeah, to run yeah. their own business, run their own lives, but don't want to sort of have to go into an office every day and like manage like fifty people and all that kind of yeah. stuff, right? Because you know, all of the kind of the outsourcing infrastructure all exists. Like you know, you, you need builders, you go and hire a builder for a project, but not but they're not on the payroll, yeah. right? You know, lawyers same, accountants the same. So you know, all the people that you need kind of there you need to find them obviously you know, get some recommendations and whatnot but you know you can kind of so you can build you know a business at scale and you can accelerate it um in that way and then the other thing is going back to the financing side of it like you know not necessarily wanting to kind of bring in shareholders and effectively kind of like create a new job you yeah. know just being a ceo and being a job is a job for sort of delivering shareholder value um with property you know, because it's asset backed, you know, you can get lending, right, straight off the bat, you know, if you, you just, you know, you can start a company tomorrow, find a property, you'll be able to get some level of lending, like, the, yeah. more, the more experienced you are, the easier it gets, and the more money you can borrow, and all that kind of stuff, but you'll be able to get some degree of lending, because that person's got, that lender's got security on an asset, so, it just kind of like, it's a completely different sort of set of sort of financial constructs, I suppose, um, and I've always been interested in property as well, and, you know, brand design, all that kind of vibe, yeah, yeah, yeah. but like, I don't think that in itself is a good enough reason to start a business, and that's probably what I learned from the first one. Right, that was something I was I was mm. interested in, I was quite passionate about, but that wasn't really kind of enough to kind yeah. of make that successful, or for me to want to sort of like 
stick at it for the years and years that it takes. Okay, and then before you got your first property, or when you did, yeah, books educate any sort of knowledge, or was it nope, straight in, buy it, do it, just learn on the job? So yeah, so I did do some education. Um, I think that my looking back now, I think that my view on education was probably the problem is when you're when you're looking to you know when you're looking for that, and I did some paid education. When you're looking for that service, um, you're by definition sort of ignorant about what you really need and want, probably, because yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's why you're looking to get educated. Mm. When I look at it now, I think probably um, like something that's more sort of mentor-based would have been, that's probably what I would recommend other people to do. I did something that was a bit more sort of classroom-based mm-hmm. with some practical support as well. Um, so yeah, a bit of education, although I sort of slightly deviated from that really as soon as with the first project because it was HMO-focused, um, the courses that I did, but they were much more focused on the more sort of standard, like five and six beds. Uh, and with the first project I did, I went straight to an eight bed, which, okay. as uh, some people listening and watching will know, that that requires planning permissions. Take, you know, if you're going beyond six beds, it requires planning permission. Um, so there's a little bit more risk involved in that. But, you know, I kind of like did the due diligence, established that the risk was kind of tolerable and, and kind of went for that. And that's been sort of a model that I then replicated in a few other projects after that. And where do you live? So I live in South West London. So I actually live probably, I can walk I can walk to this project in about 35 minutes. And actually during lockdown, when I was still scared of getting a train, I, uh, yeah, I would walk here to meet the builders. But uh, yeah, okay. or, or it's like a... So, I mean, a standard three-bed terrace family home costs how much where you live, roughly? Where I live, um, probably, if it needs some work, you know, needs modernization, it's probably sort of like 950 or so is kind of the entry price. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that is a, a crazy amount of money. Yeah. What made you stay local, 35 minutes, you know, areas around here versus yeah. what most people do, which is head straight north? Yeah. So, I mean, the first point is that, you know, Within London, house prices change very, you know, quite quickly in sort of sh- relatively short sort of uh, distances. So, although where I am lucky enough to live, the houses are more expensive. The houses, what you know, that we're sitting in right now, is you know, half that price, mm-hmm. um, there or thereabouts. So, you know, the um, yeah, the pound per square foot changes very dramatically. Um, in terms of, so you know, I'm looking at areas in London, you know, not right on my doorstep, but you know. I've been lucky enough to be able to find things sort of within a half hour journey door to door, um, which I think that was something that was important to me if I could make it work because, you know, at the end of the day, not many people like traveling long distance. Um, you <laughs> Unless know. you're listening to the Test Talks podcast. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, some people do get quite, but I, there's, other, there's other times to listen to podcasts, guys. I see people in their <laughs> cars being like, yes, I can listen to podcasts. It's like, you can do it anytime you want. So, you know, I'm not a massive fan of kind of jumping on the train for two hours or getting in the car for two or three hours and all that kind of stuff. Um, I have got a young family. Yeah, I was just quite keen to try, you know, see if it could be done in London and sort of explore that avenue first before kind of jumping on where it's you know it's by definition it's got to be you know Leeds or Manchester or wherever um so I think that you know in terms of kind of debate about you know do you always have to go to you know to certain other parts of the country you know it's an it's an inescapable fact that um you know the property prices are higher in certain parts than they are in others um but having said that you know I mean, look, you invest where you invest is is, is 
not expensive in Manchester, right? So, you know, there's always there's always a cheaper place and the cheaper mm. places are where you invest as well. So, you know, it's not it's not just about is it is it expensive or cheap in terms of, you know, the amount of money involved. Um, you know, it's about does the deal stack and, you know, the because, you know, you're gonna get higher rents in, in higher value areas as well. Um, you know, you might only need um, two or three London HMOs to generate the same income as you would need, you know, double the number in Manchester or, you know, sorry to keep picking on Manchester, <laughs> but, you know, or, or somewhere else. So, you know, I think that it's it's not, maybe that assumption has kind of become a bit too like baked in, you know, in the sort of mm. property investing community or in people who are sort of starting out. Um, you know, it's certainly true that the yields are a bit higher in those kind of places. And so I think that when people are looking at, well, I just want to park some cash in, you know, some new build flats, then yeah, you would probably go outside of London because, you know, you probably look at the yields and say, well, that's going to generate me more income. Um, you know, some people would say, well, capital value in London is going to do better long term, but, you know, that's a bit of a punt, so who really knows. So yeah, for me, it's more about the deal stack. And then the other, I suppose the other point is, you know, ultimately, yes, if the if the property prices are higher, then... You will need you will need more capital to, to execute the project. I think that's right. right. That, the start. Yeah, and I suppose, and I think, I think the thing is that you know, yes, you know, once you've got a bit of experience, you can probably find ways of solving that in terms of raising capital from investors or from a from a lender. Um, but you might not be able to do that when you're first starting out. So you know, I think it makes a lot of sense for people potentially do a sort of like you know a case study project or a pilot project somewhere yeah. else to show yeah. that they can do this. Um, but you know, there's no there's no reason why you don't have to stay in that area sort of forever. Um, you know, the way it works the way it works in a higher value area like this is that yes, the property is a bit more expensive, but you can also use that to your advantage. So when you build an extension in Manchester versus London, the cost is similar. Like it will be a bit more expensive in London, labour yeah, costs are yeah. a bit higher, but the costs are similar, they're not sort of radically different. Mm. How much is that space worth? on you know the market whether you're valuing it bricks and mortar or whether you're valuing it commercially what's the end value of that space you've added is obviously a lot lot higher in london so you've got an arbitrage in terms of the cost to build and the value of what you just built where i invest if i build an extension you lose money yeah exactly. it's it's mad because you see certain projects and it's like i bought a house that had the footings for an extension to be built and i said i'm not building it yeah chuck hardcore over it let's just make a garden yeah because it would cost 21 grand to build it Add about eight grand to the house. Yeah. So, so some strategies don't work in certain areas, and that's exactly yeah. And some development. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not into development or land deals or anything like that. But you know, having spoken to people, I know that you know some land is worth zero or negative. Negative, yeah, yeah. negative. Why invest? Because there's just negative. no there's no point building, even if it's quite a large. And that's one one house. And you know, you can say, well, what about a big plot? No, there are big some plots out there. Negative, which yeah. don't make it unviable. So. That's obviously never the case in London. You know, James will tell you, you know, you can build on anything in London, right? So, um, you know, so it's always going to make money um, pretty much, um, you know, if you can, uh, if you can build, if you can build in this area, just, you know, the, the price to build is... And you got permitted development, of course, which makes it easier. Yeah. So, you know, not, this is another slight misconception, you know, people sort of think that all of London is covered in an article for preventing HMO conversions. Can't be the whole of London. But it isn't the whole of London, that's the thing. Um, but some people seem to think that. Now, quite a lot of councils in London have now introduced an Article 4 preventing you turning a, a house into a HMO without any planning permissions. 
but there are still places that haven't yet done that. So there are still opportunities. Um, you know, I think that it's probably only a matter of time until it is most of London that's that that's happening. With too. Article Four, are there still opportunities as good as non-Article Four areas? Um, Broad question, but probably. I mean, arguably better opportunities, but harder to find and harder to execute. So, in art- when they brought in Article Four, it really does depend upon what's what's driven it and what's driven that introduction of that, and what planning policy they've then put in after it. Now, some places it's basically, you know, they've got a massive student population and they're just, you know, they're fed up with, um, you know, basically losing losing these houses that can no longer be lived in by families. Mm. Um, or they just feel that an area is becoming just too densely populated, like, you know, the parking out of control, the bins, the waste collection doesn't work anymore. Like, it's just too, it's just too dense. Um you know, I think that what so so quite often what you'll find is that you know if it's driven if it's driven by that first one, which is we're losing too many family sized dwellings like the three bed houses. They're mm-hmm. quite you know in some areas they're they're really they're really lacking or they they feel like they haven't got enough supply of those anymore. And part of the reason is because of HMO conversions. So that means that they're not necessarily against HMOs per se. They're just against the loss of the family house. Yep. So you could, for example, then do a commercial conversion. You know, if you were to have, you know, a shop with two or three stories above it, you could turn the two or three stories above it into an HMO um, and keep the shop or, you know, whatever it was. But it would just be a different, because you'd be going to the council saying, you know, we want planning permission for this. And they'd be like, well, we actually don't have a problem with HMOs. We just don't want everyone nicking those family houses, right? Mm. So yes, I think, and, and probably, you know, the the economics on a deal like that would actually be pretty good, you know, if you because you probably wouldn't be competing with, you know, owner-occupiers yeah. and that sort of stuff. It would just be an investor-only deal if you're looking at, you know, a, a shop with tops or whatever. So yeah, I think that there still definitely are, um, there's still definitely HMO opportunities when there's no article, when there is an article for, and arguably even better ones, but they're a bit more complicated they're probably not for the first time or the novice and you have to take the effort to understand what's driving it because a lot, you might just oh before no I can't invest when actually it's hold on let's investigate why right yeah I think that's right and I think like a lot of people and myself included you know when you start out you want it to be as de-risked as possible so yeah. you want to you know so if you want to do HMOs for example you would look for an area probably where there isn't an article for so you just know right I can definitely buy this house and I can definitely claim this is for HMO and it's, it's easy and it's simple but as you kind of like get more comfortable with it, um, you know, that's when you start to think, well, actually, I'm, I'm comfortable sort of interacting with the planning system. You know, as long as I've got the right planning consultant on board, you know, we can look at sites together and, you know, you can kind of apply what you've learned about HMO conversions and the whole regs side of it and, you know, what works in what areas, that sort of stuff. But you can apply that to maybe a slightly more complex project um, to, to get better returns in. So let's talk about your first deal then, the yeah. 8-bed. How much did you buy it for and what, what was it? Was it in bad condition? Was it okay? Was it... It was in pretty bad, Nick. I mean, yeah, everything I buy is kind of, you know, definitely in need of modernisation, as the agents would say. Like, you know, pretty, you know freeze, pr- pretty rough, but but habitable. Like, I, I've never, mm. I haven't actually yet bought anything which is, you know, fire damaged or like a complete wreck. Um, not for want of trying, but, you know, it just hasn't happened yet. So I tend to buy things that definitely sort of need work, but aren't sort of, um, aren't in any kind of desperate state. Um, the first one I bought, 
It was four hundred fifty thousand. Was um, that below asking or? Um, I think I got a little bit of a discount, but not a lot. I mean, to be honest, with the first one, I was probably a little bit impatient to get going. I think that I probably, you know, compared to some of the other deals I've done, I probably overpaid a little bit for that one. Mm-hmm. Um, so four hundred fifty purchase refurb was. 180, 190 in that sort of ballpark. That's uh, that's, a, that's lot. a lot of money. What? So we'll get into what, yeah. what's involved in that. Um, that one got revalued at 800. Um, that's that's the sort of the amongst properties I've done, sort of comparable to one another. That's probably that's the lowest end valuation that I've done. That was actually valued, so people can't really remember this anymore. It's a while ago, but the first Brexit deadline, like Theresa May was like jumping on TV randomly and saying like, you know, don't panic, we're not gonna fall off the cliff edge on Friday. It was like March thirty first, the original deadline. It was it was like it was valued that week. So it was definitely not a good time to have the surveyor come out. Um, and they took ages to come back with the valuation report, like three weeks or something, when they're supposed to do five working days. And I think they were just literally like, you know, panicking about what was going on with this Brexit thing. Anyhow, um, so look, the deal was good. The returns on it were not as good as on my other one because I overpaid a little bit. How did you still like a sort of? So yeah, so I left. So that's the thing. On that one, I probably left in about a hundred grand, and so the returns on that are sort of thirty-five percent or something like that. So it's still good, still solid. Um, But more cash than I would want to leave in these days. I think with. That one, in terms of the refurb, and to be fair, most of my refurb costs are something out of that, and it's and it's going back to that earlier point. You know, I'm I'm looking for houses that I that I will be definitely be able to add space to. So you know, rear extension, side extension, loft conversion. On that one, we did a six meter a rear extension, six meters off the back of the house. Wow. So that probably added the house is probably five or six meters wide. Yeah, six meters wide. So, you know, added more than 30 square metres of space there. Um, did the loft, that probably added a similar amount of space, about 30 square metres. We probably increased the footprint, like the, the, the square footage of that house, not the footprint obviously, but the, yeah, the square footage we probably increased by like 60% or something like that. So, wow. you know, yes, it's a lot of money, but it's less than, yeah, it, it, it makes sense in the end value of these things. I mean, the loft, the loft is kind of, that's one of my favourite things to do because, you know, although it costs thirty, thirty-five thousand pounds maybe. What we're sitting um, in costs about that much. That's it? what we're sitting in now. Um, you know, the the extra space that you've added, um, whether it's valued as the rent that this room will achieve or whether it's valued as just the square footage of it, you know, it's probably worth at least four times what it cost. Um, and you can't say that for everything, right? Like if you paint you just like go into a house and like paint the walls and put in a, a cheap kitchen you won't get a four times markup on, on your spend mm-hmm. so it's about there are some things that you have to do because like a rewire because you want it to be safe and you're particularly if you're going to own it going forward you need it to be you know you know it's going to last mm-hmm. but it doesn't probably change the value of it very much you know if you yeah. put a house on the market with or without a rewire like who, who really knows um and then you've got some things where you get a big turn on your money because it's very tangible like you know, this did not exist, and that was yeah, that's yeah. right. So, yeah, I think that you know, within that refurb, you know, you've got your total cost. There's some things that are sort of the really profitable things to do, and there's some things that you just kind of have to do that don't necessarily make you that much money. If that makes sense. And how did you fund the purchase and refurb of this? So, on the first one, first one, you first made one, the first yeah, project, yeah. yeah. So, like I said earlier, I think you know, 
raising raising finance gets easier as you kind of go on. I mean, the first one I got a bridge loan for seventy percent of the purchase price, funded the thirty percent and the refurb myself. So you know that absorbed a lot of capital, mm. but I knew that it was I, a I knew I'd get a decent amount of it back. B, you know, it was really kind of like a proof of concept project to then be able to then be able to go to investors and say this is an investable yeah um, sort of model which I plan to replicate. Um, How long are you planning to? So the way that I do the way that I did those I've done four eight bedroom in a similar area to one another and the way that I do the planning is um, I actually go in retrospectively after the work's complete for the planning so the way that works is you buy this house um, you ex- you do the extensions under committed developments so before it becomes an HMO while it's still a house a family house it's a C3 mm-hmm. it still has all its committed development rights so yeah. you can build the loft you can build three or six metre rear extensions side extensions all that stuff within the PD sort of boundaries um, and then you can also obviously then do the internal reconfiguration and all the en suites and all that kind of stuff for the HMO conversion um, now under the planning, you know, under permitted development, you can only turn it into a C4 HMO, which is for six people. So you can build out as many rooms as you want, but you can only have six people living there. Yeah. So what uh, I would do is I would build it out as eight rooms. I would then have six people move in. Um, I would put in the planning application. And at that point, I'm not saying to them, I want to turn this family house into a large HMO, which would often get knocked back. I'm saying to them, I want to turn this six-bed HMO into an eight-bed HMO. I just want two additional people living here. And it's quite hard to argue that two people is going to make, <laughs> like, is the difference between life and death for the neighbours and all that yeah, kind of stuff, yeah, yeah. right? And, you, and, and, and to be fair, some of them have had absolutely no uh, problems from neighbours uh, at the planning. I mean, none of them have caused the neighbours any actual problems in real life. But at the planning stage, there's been some that have, um, you know, they've received no objections, and there's been some that have received some objections. So, yeah, there is always, there's, there's quite often, you know, um, a reluctance to have um, HMOs with your next door neighbour. Um, but I think that, you know, reality is, you know, they're not all the same. You can't tie them all with the same brush. You know, if you've got a nice one, then you're going to get nicer tenants. You're going to have, you know, professionals. People get very worried about parking as well, but to be honest, like very few of my tenants have cars. It's quite, it's it's quite park, rare. Yeah. Most people are using public transport, um, so it doesn't tend to have much of an impact on that. Um, but yeah, so that's how that's the sort of the planning side of it. So there is risk involved in that. You know, you could, I mean, it never happened to me, thank, uh, thankfully. Um, but if you were pursuing that model, clearly there is a risk that they could turn around and say, "No, no, well, I've given you eight people." Yeah. At that point, you could go back. You could either appeal it, or you could go back and say, "How about seven people?" So. You know, you'd still be able to get a bit more rent out of it. But the point is that, you know, if you were stuck at six and you've got two bedrooms in that loft conversion, you would probably wish you hadn't done the loft conversion. Yeah. Because it would have been a waste of money and you could have got two empty rooms out there. The problem is you can't really re- you can't really go back in when you've got six people living in a house and say, hey, guys, we're building a loft conversion. Like, it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty dirty and dusty and there's builders coming and going and you've got scaffolding up. It doesn't really sort of work to try and sort of like game it like that. Mm. So you kind of have to decide if you're going to do it up front, um, take a bit of a risk, or just keep it to you know six people. And what was the biggest challenge on that project, especially with it being your first? Um, was it straightforward? 
I think I had I did have good builders, um, and that obviously helps. Mm. I think particularly with an HMO, I would definitely advise people to look for, for builders that have got you know, HMO experience. Yeah. Um, there's there's stuff to do with regulations that it's all very well that you knowing that you need to have this particular soundboard or this particular type of fire alarm or whatever. But you know you need to trust that the builders actually going to execute that, and that they know what that stuff is, and they're, yeah. not, they're not hearing about it for the first time, just as you are hearing about it for the first time. Yeah. So yeah, I think like having builders um, that have done HMOs and know what they're doing definitely definitely helps. Um, I think probably though, you know, still on on that same point, probably the thing that I found caused me stress on that project was you know you need to get an HMO license at the end of it in order to be able to rent the rooms, and. I think when it's the first time you're doing one, you're inevitably a little bit nervous. Like, what if they come round and they don't give me a license? Like, I mean, yeah, true. Yeah. I mean, you know, to give an example, in most in most parts of the country, like the national standard for room sizes for HMOs is six and a half square meters. That's actually pretty damn small, and I wouldn't. What is this room roughly that we're sitting in? Uh, this one's probably like eighteen square meters or something. This is yeah, this is a good size. Yes, this yeah. is a very good size. Very good size yeah. um, so. You know, with um, what we're talking about, yeah, so with the room sizes, now the local authority that I was in working at that time, they had a minimum, they, you know, local authorities can introduce their own standards above the uh, national minimums. So they've got a 10 square meter minimum room size, which is fine, and it's still probably the sort of size I'd want to do anyway from like, you know, providing a good quality product. But, you know, you're a little bit nervous on the first one. You know, what if it's actually 9.8 square metres? Like, are they actually going to deny me the licence? I think in reality what you figure out is that, like, you know, these HMO officers, they're not as scary as people think they are. You know, just like building control, just like all these people, you know, they're not trying to, you know, mug you off. Like, if it's if it's 9.5 or whatever, you know, it, it'll be fine. If it goes below 9, then they might start to say... It's a little bit small to be yeah. honest. And, and that's, that's fair enough, right? That's yeah, exactly. But the point is, there's plenty of sort of like, you know, there's plenty of interpret. There's, there's, there's wiggle room, and you know, as long as they can see you're trying to do the right thing, you're trying to create a good product, it's not going to be dangerous for anybody to live here, then you know, they tend to be pretty relaxed about giving you the license. Okay, so you had that deal and it got valued at less than what you expected? Uh, well, maybe, yeah, I mean, in terms of the value, I mean, so the way I. It's quite difficult actually to know what what these things are going to get valued at. Mm. Like, there's you know there is a there's a bit of subjectivity in the end values, and we can kind of dive into that a bit if you want. But basically, I sort of always look at things on quite a range of value, end values because you know you can't sort of nail it down. It's not like the bricks and uh, mortar valuations. I want to say bricks and mortar there. <laughs> uh, it's like... it's a new type of valuation. Exactly. It's not like the bricks and mortar where you can like, you know, you can go on and find your comps and like figure out, okay, you know, square footage and mm. you, know, you can, you can, you should be able to, I know you don't, you sometimes don't get what you want nevertheless, but you should be able to have a pretty good idea what the end value ought to be. It's just a bit more, it's just a bit more uncertain with these, with these, with these HMO commercial ones. So yeah, I always look at a range. I think that 800 on that one was probably towards the lower end of my expectations, but it was still within, yeah, it was still within range. So after that, pro so that was property number one. So that's property number one. How many are we at now? So this is the fifth one. So I did the f I completed the first one in October or so of twenty eighteen. So oh, okay. yeah, a little under two years ago. And when I say I completed, I completed the refurb. That's quite a long sort of cycle on these projects because then you go into the 
planning process to get it to the eight beds. Mm. Then you refinance it. Um, so, yeah, the start of last year was when I was quite confident. I was like, okay, this is actually quite a, a replicable model. And I decided to do three projects last year. Well, that was the target. Yeah. And I managed to get those three projects done um, last year. Although we were still refinancing uh, the last of the the last one which we completed around Christmas time because of COVID the refi is just happening now so it's been wow. revalued the mortgage offer has just come out but yeah the point is that they, these things can take a while and actually I was looking this morning I, I think I had my offer accepted in May last year so that would have been from, from sort of having the offer accepted to completing on the refi that would have been yeah I don't know 15, 16 months or something and that's what but people are talking about. That's a pandemic, so that's <laughs> yeah. I mean, normally, what is it then? From from say getting the keys to getting it refinanced, what's the kind of normal people should expect? Yeah, for that sort of thing, those have generally been um, more like eight to nine months. That's pretty eight quick. Nine months. Well, that's quicker than I think people. Yeah. Expect. How I long mean, does the refurb take of that? The refurb is should be about four months. Something like this. This has been a bit slower because of COVID, but um, yeah, about four months. And so then let's let's talk about the house we're sitting in. What actually? No, before we do that, let's talk about rental income from these properties. Yeah. So my first question is, what sort of rental income can people expect from HMOs in these types of areas? So the end values of most are sort of eight hundred, nine hundred ish. Yeah. What is the rental income of that? Yeah. So. You know, in these kind of areas, you know, if it's commutable to central London, and okay, that's a subjective opinion, but you know, if you can get into sort of central London within, um, you know, sort of forty minutes door to door, that sort of thing, I think that's what most people feel is like, yeah, a reasonable commute. I'd say that, that you know, the rooms, and it will depend upon you know the the size of the room, obviously, and the quality of the finish and the communal, how good the communal areas are. But in our houses, we get. Um, sort of the top end in a shared house, which is a room, we're talking about a room of sort of 13, 14 square metres with an ensuite. Those will rent for 850 per month. All bills included. Um, In the same house, which is under the same quality, with the same communal space, etc. A smaller room um, without an ensuite, so maybe something that's like 10 metres squared without an ensuite, um, that might be seven hundred, even six seventy-five. Okay. So quite a bit of variance depending upon the size of the room and the ensuite. Definitely has a big factor. So the ensuite it probably accounts for, um, yeah, at the very least fifty pounds a month, potentially more than that to be honest. Um, and then size is the other factor. So it's a bit of a range. Um. But what we te- given that we tend to try and do bigger rooms, tend to try and do the en-suites, um, the, the houses, the, the rooms in those types of houses, the first four I did, they tend to average out to be sort of 790, 800, like towards 800. And what do people notice or look for when they view your HMO rooms? Like, is an ensuite more important than a communal area? Is the kind of swag more important than the size? What do you think is really important? Top I think important it things. totally depends on the person. Mm. And that's why I think some some you know, some viewing convert and some don't is because we're 
we're creating something which is going to appeal to somebody who really values the honesty, yeah. who really values the swag, who... Sounds like me. Yeah, exactly. Um, who... And... But, you know, if you've got... A, you can have a beautiful room, but if it's 10 square metres and someone's like, you know, I like to play the keyboard, yeah, or I like to do yoga... Like, we could definitely do yoga in this room. We could definitely do yoga yeah, in this yeah. room, yeah. I mean, this could be a sports, yoga studio. Yeah. I'd probably have more money out of it, to be honest. <laughs> Especially for but, <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, you know, sometimes people want space and mm. they don't care that much about the sort of interior finish and the fact that you've got black knobs rather than, you know, sort of like grass oh, ones yeah, that your grandma yeah. would have. Like, <laughs> they just don't care about that stuff. They don't have an eye for it. They don't value it. And that's mm. fine. Like, this is a different sort of customer. And hopefully, because the photos show... This is a sort of like swaggy house. Yeah, so they yeah. wouldn't bother coming in the first place, but yeah. they, they still do. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So you're looking. So you know, you're trying to appeal to people who who care about that sort of stuff. Clearly, um, I think for me, like for me, if I was a potential tenant, en suites would be the most important thing, and having a little studio cube thing, yeah, that would be super important. Yeah, I mean, so in this one that we're sitting in, and obviously, if you're listening, you can't see this, but this is a slightly different concept to the other house I've done. The other ones I've done have been your classic. HMO shared house that you'll have seen, you know, on Instagram and stuff. You know, it's got a nice big communal space, and then everyone's got their bedroom. You know, the communal space has got the kitchen, it's got a dining table, it's got a sofa, a TV, and it's kind of like living in a student house. Mm. Um, you know, you're all, you know, it, it's quite communal living, mm. right? Um, you, you know, you've got a couple of fridges or whatever, but you've each got your shelves in it. So, it, it, but it's very shared in that sense. The house that we're in right now is a bit of a different concept. It's more sort of studio style. So we've got bigger rooms, but less communal space. Um, and in each room, there's a sort of a dry kitchen with a fridge and a microwave and, um, and toaster and kettle and things. So there still is a kitchen, a communal kitchen, but it's smaller than it would be in a shared house. And it's for people to, um, you know, it's when they want to do real cooking. You know, clearly mm. you can bake your bread in there. Yeah, I guess, but um, definitely couldn't make no. But, um, but, you know, you can make soups and salads and sandwiches and breakfast. I think breakfast is one that people actually... I think that people will quite like that idea of, you know, when when everyone's leaving the office, uh, sorry, everyone's leaving the house at the same time to go to work, you know, the cube for the kettle and the toaster and that stuff that yeah. can be quite annoying for people. So I think being able to do that sort of stuff in your room is quite it will be quite good. Um, is it important for you to I guess innovate in that sense? Because everyone wants to do HMOs, everyone sees the income, everyone sees the swag, everyone yeah, you know, for a lot of people, especially when they're new, it's like, oh, I want to do HMOs, it's like three grand a month, blah blah blah. Yeah. Is it important for you to do little things like that which set you apart? Like, do you think it's important to your income and to your business to do them, or do you do it because you like it? Uh, well, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, in terms of why do we go, why do we try to tend to be sort of premium or high end of the market? I think that, you know, there is less competition at that level. Um, you know, probably, you know, it's like a lot of things. Like, the best place to be in the market is either to be the best or the cheapest, mm -hmm. you know? If you're, you know, if you're selling, you know, luxury watches or whatever, you know, high-end, fine. There's also a market for people who want a £5 Casio, you know. But in that in-between space, it's very, very, very crowded. Mm. Um, and everything just becomes sort of commoditized. And eventually what happens, the, the price does get pushed down anyway. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's always a floor, theoretically, with sort of like housing association prices sort of set the floor. But yeah, we try to be top end. It's less competitive. Um, I think you, I think you know, you're more likely to have tenants in sort of more stable jobs, mm -hmm. um, who are more easily referenceable um, and are you know, probably 
less likely to have issues yeah. paying their rent. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you know, in the last few months, in touch wood, we got away fairly lightly, but clearly, you know, plenty of people who have got you know quite successful careers have had income issues. So, you know, it's not a complete sort of protection, but that's what we try to do. And and frankly, you know, it's also you know, it is it's the right thing to do to try and provide like the best that you actually best that you can. And it's also much more enjoyable for me. Like I enjoy the kind of the you know the interior design side of it, and yeah, I just get a lot more pleasure out of you know doing something that's a bit more sort of thoughtful and planned mm. out, and you know doing the brick slips and that sort of stuff, rather than just like make white boxes and you know. Yeah. Okay, I'll get a little bit less rent, but you know I don't care. I, it's more it's more fun if you kind of you know you've got to find a bit you've got to find parts of this sort of you know the property world that you enjoy. Yeah. It's difficult to enjoy all of it. Yeah. It's so fair yeah. it's so varied, that's yeah. the thing though, you know. I think there is there will inevitably be parts of it that you like and parts of it that you dislike. Um, um, speaking if you of, don't like any of it and don't do it. Yeah, basically, yeah, don't. <laughs> um, speaking of interior design, that was my next question. So this is gorgeous. For people who are listening, um, get onto my YouTube channel in a few days and you will see a video tour of this property. But it is like very nice. Like is that that's real brick? The real brick slips, yeah. Ah, oh, I thought it was... Wow. That's not wallpaper. Gorgeous. I hate the wallpaper. Like, it's I, I, so like, yeah. I love um, the plot. It's just industrial, but still kind of chic. It's just... So, my question is then... Yeah. You were a banker before. Yeah. Not a creative job whatsoever. Yeah. Especially not visually. How... For pe- a lot of people say, oh, I want to do like design a space like this. They'll yes. mention you. They'll mention certain people on Instagram. Yeah. But they're like, how do I know what matches? How do you design do you have any inspiration any tips any websites books how can people design like you um so i mean to your first point yes my background wasn't very creative but i think that was probably one of the things i disliked about it like, i do think i have a bit of that creativity mm. and that that's something that i enjoy being able to utilize now which i couldn't in the past but i think you know if you were to look at like my first project like it's all on my instagram if you were to look at my first project it's quite a lot more bland than this mm. i still made a bit of effort um, well, I've made a lot of effort, but you know, in terms of probably, I was less confident in terms of like sort of pushing, pushing the boundary a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that what changed, or what made me probably what made me more confident was actually trying to look at what other people were doing. To be honest, um, you know, look on Instagram, Pinterest, where well, you won't find many HMOs on Pinterest necessarily, but like you know, just getting a bit more into um, that sort of design or interiors type world and just kind of like what I noticed is that it's really easy to look at a picture and say that looks good but actually you haven't really looked at it like you just mm. look because you've looked at it in the hole yeah. so you've looked at it you said that looks great I'd like to recreate that but then when you try and recreate it you don't actually know what it is you're trying to recreate because you didn't yeah, actually, I like that you didn't yeah. actually look at and I do this all the time like you didn't actually look at but what actual colour were the walls like they were, <laughs> they were pale yeah. You know, when something goes together really well, I'm not saying this. This is quite simple. This is white, and you know, it's quite it's, still, it's quite it white and airy. Works. But you know, when you look at like a really good interior design photo, quite often, like because everything so works together, mm. like you can't even like split out what it is that you like about yeah, it. Yeah, you know what I mean? Just like I just want it feels good. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that can be a bit tricky, but um, yeah, I think like some of the simple things, and you'll see lots of people doing this kind of stuff. But like, you know. The black handles and that mm. sort of stuff that is quite popular. And, and they're cheap. Looks good. I mean, they're like cheaper than chrome sometimes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, on the kitchens and stuff, they're no more expensive. On the doors, maybe a little bit more expensive, but like not, bit, not, yeah. not, not game changing. Um, I think um, colors. I mean, how did you colors? 
So it's fire and, I mean, fire and ball are great in terms of taking their colours and colour matching them because no one's got £50 for a litre. Yeah, exactly. How do you know, because all their shades are beautiful, how do you know which one's going to be neutral enough to appeal but kind of sexy enough to then be like, ooh? Yeah, I mean, Is there so like, we were saying earlier, like, this green, like, green's definitely having, like, a moment for the last year or so. I think that... The nice thing about green is that, like, it's, it's very unisex. Like, mm-hmm. um, I definitely don't want to sort of, like, gender stereotype here, but I think that there would be... Um, I am actually, personally, quite like these sort of, like, dusky, like, almost greyish pinks that are quite popular oh, like, right now. Like blush pink as well. But I would be... And they've got one sulking room pink, I think it's called. That is a nice colour. Very nice colour. Mm, very but nice colour. I would be nervous that some less modern men than us... Yes, would be put off by that and would not rent a pink room. So you have to be a little bit conservative. Give me ideas now. You have to be somewhat conservative, I think, in terms of like how you're going to place this because it's got to appeal to you know a broad enough audience. Yeah. Um, you know, green I think is quite popular because yeah, it is quite sort of unisex in that way. And it is um, still, but this is not neutral, but it's not in your face. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think what's popular these days are these kind of like these greyish like greyish colours right so it's mm. not sort of like you know it's not neon it's not like too you know rah 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 mm. um, you know it sort of changes the light a little bit but um, but yeah I think you know you sort of you find you find your style gradually and incrementally um, mm. it's it's not something you, you can always go back and change things if you're not happy with it you can always go back and change things it's not sort of it's, it's never done forever Unfortunately, like there's, <laughs> there's maintenance involved, so you're going to be doing it whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah, I think. I mean, when you design HMOs, because I do this for Vitalets, they are plain. I'd never, as much as I want to, I probably wouldn't use a screen. I might do the kitchen in the screen, but I wouldn't use it on the walls. Yeah, um, I just do all white really because I want them to come in and put their stamp on it and be there forever. Different type of like. Person. Yeah, yeah, and also if you're if you're selling something unfurnished, I think it's much more difficult to do. Oh, yeah, you don't know what the feature wall will be, where will where will things go. Have a yellow like, sofa or green when you're doing an HMO, you're providing furniture. Like this is the layout. Of the this room, is the style. So I know, like you know, I know how it's going to all fit together. I think it's much more difficult to do on bike. Do you think? Because I do it so that it's neutral as hell, and in ten years it will still be neutral as hell. Yeah. With yours, do you think about? I still want it. Like in five years, I want this to be as sexy as it is now. Is it a consideration, HMO? Uh, I think it's a consideration not to go too trend-led, like not yep. too of the moment. Um, different people will have different opinions on this. Because um, fashion not, changes so quickly. Right? Yeah, exactly. I'm not being critical of anyone who would do this. I personally wouldn't do like a load of like um, OSD cladding. You know, that's all like chip, chipboardy type stuff. Oh, the Scandi type stuff. Yeah, it's like sort oh, well, of. Nice um, well, it's like, is it Scandi? Yeah, either way. So, you know, there are some things like OSB, which I think is kind of like, it is cool, it's happening right now. I have a feeling that in five years' time that will look quite dated mm. and it'll probably be a bit tatty as well. Um, and with something like that, you know, if it's been attached to the wall, once you take it down, now you've got to make the wall good and all that kind of stuff. Like, paint is great because you just paint over it. Yeah. You change your mind, fashion's changed, you need maintenance, you paint over it. Um, I have done a bit, of, I've done some wallpaper in communal areas. I think, you know, I try to keep the rooms a bit more neutral. Mm. Um, so that they're sort of, but I think you can have a bit more fun in the communal areas. You can. And that's where I would sort yeah. of put in some wallpaper, maybe. Um, you know, brick slips are great because they're, that's very neutral. I don't think there's anybody in the world that doesn't like a brick wall. Yeah, I do love a brick wall. <laughs> so uh, that's, that, that's, pretty, like, that's pretty universal. Like, it's not too out there. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think generally my, my advice is like, 
you know, it's finding that balance, and it's not a very helpful answer. It's finding that balance between, you know, it's somewhat visually arresting, it's pleasant to look at, pleasant to mm. be in, but it's not gone over the top to a place where either A, it's alienating some people, mm-hmm. and they would reject the property on the basis of it, or it's so current that in three years' time it's going to look dated. Mm. I think this room does exactly what you want it to do because, yes, it is kind of trendy and current, but it's so kind of visually pleasing and calming that it just feels so neutral. But it isn't because you've got little bits of swag which yeah. still make it stand out. Yeah, exactly. Which I, I think, think it's really important. I think that, I mean, and if I was thinking about how I would do like, maybe my own house now, I think like the. the I want the, this colour in this split. The, this the, like, but the aesthetic value in. Like those finishing touches, like the the hardware, mm. um, the lighting, like the, these lights are really cool. I think they're not expensive. The wire is cool, and that's just the normal wire, but it works yeah. with the the colours. But you know, so those finishing touches, your hardware, your lighting, um, the tiles you put in the bathroom, they're probably the things that make the impact. Everything yeah. else is actually quite plain. And you know, to be honest, yeah. if these wardrobes had chrome handles, you'd say they were ugly. I 100%, 100% would say, yeah, they're just normal. I wouldn't even notice Yeah, you'd them. be like, well, you got some Argos. Yeah, nice yeah. <laughs> but the second you put those handles on, and I've done that with kitchens. I've got white kitchens, which are not trendy. Yeah. White mat. I put those handles on, exact yeah, same handles, it bit, yeah. and it looks beautiful. Yeah. Um, moving on to like the actual, I guess, running of HMOs, because obviously, once you've done the refurb, once you've done all the fun part, it's now an asset producing income. Mm. How passive are your HMOs? Not at all. <laughs> yes, I love that answer. They're not at all passive. One not to buy flip game. And not at all passive. I mean, they're probably they are obviously more passive than um, you know self managing an Airbnb or something. Yeah, or, or a um, job. Are they more passive than a job? Uh, like a nine to five. Well, you're thinking about this. Well, no, I mean, I'm just the phrase, the answer is important because it depends how many HMOs you've got. You know, okay. I'm, you know, I think that um, I think that it's something in the region of half an hour per room per week. How many rooms have you got in total? So if you were to have 40 rooms, for example. Um, how many rooms have I got? Yeah, 38. So that's why I kind of worked it out. Yeah. So I think that, not that I actually do it, I'll get on to what I do at the moment, but yeah, I would say that if you have 40 rooms, you're probably looking at 20 hours a week. So that's not a full-time job. Yeah, that's... But the difference, yeah. but the difference is a full, it's not a nine-to-five either. Like, you know, a lot of people want to do viewings, evenings and weekends. Yeah. This is obviously if you're self-managing completely. People are you self managing? I'm not at the moment. Okay. No, so you, so you, so a lot of viewings take place evenings and weekends. A lot of maintenance, most maintenance is not urgent, mm-hmm. but can be addressed within within you know within a reasonable response period, but doesn't have to be done you know at 11 p.m. on Sunday night. Yeah, you know if it's non urgent, so, but you will occasionally have an urgent one as well. Um, but yeah, it's t- it's definitely time consuming and. Going back to your earlier question, actually, what makes people take the room in terms of the size? Is it? I think it's actually as much as it's the house and the things that they can see with their own eyes. Like that doesn't need to be sold to them; they can make up their own minds about mm. that. It's what level of service are they going to get once they become a tenant? Interesting. Because they're being offered, you know, theoretically, you know, an all-inclusive, all bills included sort of living experience, right? And I think, I think, regardless of whether you're, you know, renting a house for your family or renting a room in an HMO. You know, there's always that fear, like, what if the landlord's a dick, yeah. basically, yeah. and is not going to, you know, fix things when they need fixing. Um, now, that's more so on an HMO, because, you know, there's, 
everything is everything in the house effectively is mine. Like mm. you know, it's not as if they're bringing any of their own appliances or anything. Yeah, you know, every, so anything that goes wrong is, is really my responsibility. I mean, I draw the line at changing light bulbs. I think that people should change their light bulbs. But yeah, no, I think you should. <laughs> That's a good choice. But um, but so yeah, so there's, so there's quite a lot of that sort of stuff. So um, you know, currently I use a lettings agent. Um, I did self-manage to begin with, so I knew what it was about, so I could then into a lettings agent properly. Yeah. So I self-managed. I could do that because I live <laughs> nearby. Again, obviously, it's not an, it's not an option if you if you live too far away. Um, did that for the first year or so. So I kind of like tenanted and then did some turnovers and ran one one house for a full year and then I tenanted my second house myself but didn't have to do much actual on-game management there um I think that so that's sort of how time consuming it is if you do it yourself if you want to use an agent then you really need to find like an HMO specialist agent um if you were to give these to either just like the independent on the street or Hobson's I wouldn't even none know. of them would have a clue how to do it yeah. Um, so, yeah, where you find tenants is different platforms. Um, yeah, again, like how hands-on it is is just completely different. So, it doesn't suit their model at all. Um, and so, you've got to find an HMO specialist agent. I think that's probably one thing that people could potentially overlook. Certainly, something that I didn't really think about is you know, picking an area. You know, who's who is going to manage this for me? And like, is there yeah. an, is there an agency that are that is that is well trusted and regarded? Um, you know, I think you can get to a certain scale of HMO with HMOs relatively quickly where you might actually then be able to employ someone directly on a part-time basis. Yeah. So yeah, if this is now 20 hours a week, um, that could be done clearly. There, yeah, there would be people who might be interested in that as a job. Mm. Um, and you know, you can, and, and I think that that's probably kind of the ideal place to get to, um, to have someone who sort of works for you, not necessarily yeah, as a contractor rather than an employee, but someone who is kind of dedicated to your places and that, that can do everything, every process can be done exactly how you want it done. Mm. Um, and, you know, that just yeah, gives you more control, gives you more comfort that it's being done properly. Because there's, there's, there's different things you can, you know, A, you want the people to be given the right level of service so that you're getting high levels of occupancy, but you also want to know that, you know, the fire alarms are actually being tested every week or every month, whatever the, depending on the type. I think if you you know if you give it to an agent, they'll tell you that they are, but are they actually? That's that's the problem. Yeah, right? it's all done sitting in the office. Yeah, so so yeah, management of HMOs is chronically underestimated. That's the, that's strat life. I'm, 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 <laughs> put down a t-shirt. I'm glad you said that because if I if I compare that to buy to lets for me, where they're 150 miles away, I self manage. As long as the refurb is done right, mm. I don't spend any time. Yeah. Per month per. 20 hours I've probably spent over six months. Even if so you get an, a, an age, a local agent to a tenant fine for you. Tenant they? fine. And then you're managing it. And then I'm managing yeah. it. But there is no... There's no management. There's no management. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. So, so, but I earn a lot less money. We have to make that clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. HMOs so, and buy lets So, I mean, look, but that's why, you know, my, my future plan is much more around single lets. You know, HMOs are great. I love it. You all, everyone hates buy to lets, but you all come back. You all come back. You all come back to me. HMOs are great to get yourself off the ground fast. And quit like, a job quickly. It's like if you're trying to get a rocket launch. You know, you need a lot of power, right? So, you know, that's what HMOs provide. They give you a lot of juice fast. But you don't want to carry on doing this forever because like every house you add you're adding a lot more management burden um, and you and, and it's good to be diversified so yeah the future plan will be more you know creating flats out of houses out of other buildings yeah. so you get that sing, get those single lets in the portfolio and you'll do that in London right here 
Uh, yeah, probably. I mean, we'll see. It's not, I'm not completely wedded to that it has to be in London. Again, you know, those are much more passive, so it's more com- I'm more comfortable. They were a bit further away. Yeah, that makes sense. But you know, I was actually having a conversation with my mother-in-law. She's got a she's got one sort of isolate flat. You know, just kind of like apart there for her pension. Um, it, she bought a new build five years ago. Arguably, that's a stupid investment. <laughs> but she had the same. It's two bed flat. She had the same family. The, uh, husband, wife, and two kids living there for five years. Oh. Same tenants. Like it doesn't get any more passive than that, right? Yeah, I know people are twenty, thirty, forty, fifty. Other people have lived there from their twenties to their sixties and haven't been to less. Yeah. So Amazing. you know, compared to like the turnover on HMO, where it's like probably the average average tenancy is somewhere between nine and twelve months. You know, wow. that's a lot okay. more turnover. But that's why I say it's not as bad as an Airbnb, where it's like three yeah. nights. But, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, it's not. You know, it's it, it's sort of a continuous spectrum, isn't it? And then um, end values. So there's three ways, I believe, to value HMOs. Okay, you're about to teach me something there. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. There's bricks and mortar, yeah. hybrid, and commercial. Okay, you were going for, okay, fine, hybrid. I'm going for the Prius in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Tell me what... So you said on one of your deals you pulled all the money back out? I have done on one of them, yeah. Was that commercial valuation? Yeah, all, all four so far have been commercial values. So right. they've ranged... The, the, the returns have ranged between... I'll do them in order. 35% infinite, all out, mm-hmm. 60-ish percent, and then 100-ish percent. And that's in London, people. Damn. Yeah. What is a commercial valuation? A commercial valuation. So, you know, HMOs can be valued either as a house, which is going to be, you know, roughly the square footage of it in the area. What's that worth? And that's just... That's bricks and mortar. Right? Literally, what is worth as a physical house asset? That, that's what bricks and mortar is. Cool. Um, I mean, a, com- sorry, a commercial valuation, or also sometimes called an investment valuation, is also based upon what this property is worth, but it's based on what it's worth to an investor, right? Not to a family that's going to live in it. Now, mm. this is where it's a bit strange because a lot of lenders are happy to do an investment valuation or commercial. Let's call it a commercial val, just so we're not doing either ors. A lot of a lot of lenders are happy to do a commercial val if it's a sui generis HMO, which is more than six people. So it's got planning permission to be seven or more people living there. And that's the definition of sui generis for people. But are reluctant to get to do a commercial vow on a six bed or smaller HMO. And their argument is a C4 HMO, which is about six people, can go back to being a C3. So potentially a family could buy that. Um, whereas a sui generis, it's changed its planning use. You've taken some planning risk there. You know, it's a bit. It clearly is an investment. Over that. The only person I'm going to buy that is an investor. Yeah. Where I struggle a bit is like, and that's to be fair, where the hybrid comes in is that you know if you've got a five or six bed, but you've put on suites all over the shop, you've maybe put the kitchen on the first floor. Like if you radically alter the fabric of the house, no family's ever going to buy that. Like the money it would cost to reverse it back into mm. a family house would make it prohibitive. It's always going to get sold to an investor anyway, and they're going to value it based upon the yield. So that's why some of these lenders, I think Shawbrook's probably the one that's most well known for it, have introduced this sort of hybrid, which is um, somewhere between a bricks and mortar and a commercial. But in terms of what a, com- a fully commercial value is, it's when the surveyor comes out, and they still measure up the, the property to be fair and calculate the square footage, but what they're really interested in is the, the rents that the house generates. So they'll look at the current ASTs. They'll then go away and look on the internet and see, okay, these ASTs feel like market rates, like, you know, these sustainable rents, and the house is going to get valued based upon the amount of rent that it generates. Um, so then the question is, you know, how do you get from the rents to the end value? And 
again, there's quite a lot of confusion about this, and I was didn't really have a very good understanding. Having done four, I feel like I understand it quite well now, but at the beginning I didn't. And it's quite hard to find a broker that will really kind of understand this stuff as well. So, um, you know, lots of people will say to you, oh, you know, around here stuff gets valued at like 10 times rent or eight times rent, whatever it is. Um, and that might be true as a sort of like a, a short, like a mental shortcut. It's not really how a surveyor is going to value it. Like they're not going to apply a multiple. What they're looking for, they're going to look. They're going to go away, and just like any other valuation, they're going to look for comparable data. But this time, they're looking for yields, right? So they're not looking for an identical property to work with the end value and what it's sold for. Because it's going to be very difficult to find the identical mm. property. But they're looking for similar things where an investor has paid, you know, a certain yield. Let's say they paid the price they paid implied an eight percent yield. Mm-hmm. That means that you know investors around here are willing to pay eight percent, for example. So, first of all, they'll try and find some HMOs that have sold uh, in the area, um, you know, within the usual uh, proximity and time, and uh, they will, and they've got to be able to find an HMO where they can find the purchase price and the rent roll at the time it's sold, so they can then calculate oh, the right. yield, right? So. You can get access to that data, and the main, the best place to find it is on the EIG website, which is yeah. the auction aggregator. Um, and even on their free service, you can still find uh, the sale price and the um, and the rent that generated at the time of sale. Um, it's in auction, but frankly, that doesn't mean it's like a cheap price. Like a lot of investment stuff gets sold through auction, which mm-hmm. is the way it is. So I think it's fine. It's not. Uh, it doesn't mean the price is depressed. So that's often where the surveyors will find those comparables. So they'll try and find some HMOs that have sold. They'll maybe try and find three or four. They'll com- calculate the yield that those sale prices implied. And then they'll use that, you know, an average of those yields, and apply it to your rent and calculate the value from there. Often, <coughs> often they're unable to find many HMOs that have sold mm. um, within proximity and um, with the data available. I mean, the right time frame because although when you're on social media it feels like everyone's doing HMOs actually in the real world HMOs are still quite niche and people often even if they have done them they don't sell them like they're quite they're yeah. often quite a long hold period so you often don't find a lot of sold comparables for HMOs and I think you know when I put together my valuation packs I'll find um, you know since the last two years I might find like 11 or 12 within the whole of London so within the whole, within yeah, the M25, yeah. I can find on the EIG website uh, 11 or 12 data points. But the surveyor will say, well, I'm not valuing off these ones up in Watford or something. Right? Mm. So that's quite often why you hear about your rent getting some discount on your rent. Now, if they can't find the HMOs, what are they going to compare it to? The next best thing is like a small block of flats. Okay. So when you've had like a house that's been converted into like four or five flats or something, um, that's a sort of like a multi, basically a multi-unit freehold block. That's what they're probably looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, then they'll treat, so they'll find if they can find some of those that are nearby and recent, um, and then they can calculate the yields. Now, the yields on those, or the rents rather on those, are not comparable to the rents that I get on an HMO because those are all single lets. Mm. Those flats are single lets. You know, the rent that a landlord receives that minus his mortgage or whatever, that's his own business. That's kind of all, yeah, that, that's all he's got going on. Yeah. With me, I've got you know, the utility bills, the council tax, you know, the internet, all of these kind of things. Mm. Um, plus, they'll probably then say also, you know, there's a bit more management overhead and yeah. maintenance and stuff to do with HMOs. 
and that's why your rent, if they're doing it in this way, they'll discount the rent. So they'll say, okay, we're going to use these yields on these multi-unit freeholds, but we've got to make the rent comparable first before we apply mm, it. We're okay. going to take your HMO rent, we're going to take off, in London it'd probably be like 15%, in other areas it might be a higher percentage yeah, because yeah. of just the margins involved. You know, gas and electric are similar prices everywhere. Um, so in London they'll take 15% off my rent and then they'll then apply a yield that's derived from these multi-unit freeholds. In this case it's 7% usually. Um, and then that's how we kind of get to the, the end number. I so it's a lot more. It's a lot more involved. As you'd hope, that a you know, professional surveyor is actually looking at market data. They're not just going like, "Yeah, in this area, mate, it's nine times." So, so yeah, so that's kind of um, so, yeah. So that's how they do it. And um, I've done some Instagram posts about that as well because it's dead, and they always get quite a lot of uh, interest actually. Because I think it's one of these things a... that people, everyone's everyone's quite intrigued by the commercial valuations because mm. they can be higher than a bricks and mortar, and it is worth knowing about them but um yeah it's quite difficult to sort of like find out you know just by googling it like how they actually approach it mm. and you always meet the value on site have a valuation pack and give them the source and all that yeah yeah i always meet them try and establish a bit of rapport you know a bit of banter <laughs> but with the valuation pack i do i what i do is i do have a, a present i do it more like a slideshow mm. which i know is unusual i know most people like to write like a sort of a document with lots of prose but I tend to feel like people actually prefer like bullet points and a yeah, few, points, a few yeah. tables and with the right data in it. Yeah, these are the rent rooms for each uh, rent for each rooms. Um, but I like, keep it short, like ten pages. And I know people have different opinions on this. Some people think it's a good idea to like sort of you know blind them with information, hundred page packs. I, I don't know which one is right or wrong. Or I can speak from my experience. I prefer to do the shorter ones. I think it's more likely they might actually read it if it's digestible and not sort of overwhelming um even at 10 pages they're probably very unlikely to get to the 10th page so make sure the stuff that you really care yeah. about them seeing is on the first two pages mm. maybe not the first page people just invariably skip over the first page yeah. just by default <laughs> so you know you've got to think about the stuff but you know but when you see them you can obviously talk to them and sort of you know remind them of the i had one recently i got the same surveyor back twice mm. the first time she gave me a good valuation but the only thing i was get annoyed was that one of my rooms was generating 850 a month and she knocked it back and she basically wrote in her report like 850 is not sustainable it's not I've heard about it's, out, that, it's out it's out of line with the market so she knocked it back a bit so but the bloody room is better than the whole market so what do you expect <laughs> well that's the thing yeah <laughs> anyway this time i had a house with several rooms at 850 because it's a bigger house slightly bigger room so we had several rooms at 850 and on the way out i did say by the way i don't want to tell you how to do it you know, it's pretty up, <laughs> pretty up it's pretty up to you but um last time you did change on eight fifty rooms and I think kind of shown is it's a sustainable rent for a good room. Uh she didn't she didn't uh she didn't make that she didn't make that same mistake twice <laughs> <laughs> she was uh, she, she, she was all good on that. Um but uh yeah the other thing is emailing emailing them afterwards. So mm. this is one I mean I think it can be difficult with bricks and mortar because why would they give you their business card? But with the commercial ones yeah, they're yeah. gonna want to see your um your tenancy agreements and stuff because mm. that's what they're planning it off so they'll always let you have their email address so obviously then as well as giving them what they asked for you give them a bit of what they didn't ask for so okay here's my spreadsheet with my comparables in so you're guiding them to the numbers you want mm. to use you know it's they don't want to feel overly guided but at the same time if you've got a spreadsheet with and they actually are the right comparables like you're saving them a lot of time 
Yeah. Um, and you're at least kind of like starting to sort of funnel them towards the right kind of way of thinking about it. So that's what I try to do. Send them, send, you know, as much as I'll print out something, I'll also email it to them. I'll also email them my spreadsheets. Like, yeah. Amazing. Well, we've reached the end of the podcast. Okay. If people want to get hold of you, or if they don't know already, what is your Instagram <laughs> tag? Yeah, I, so I'm on Instagram. It's uh, Bricks and Daughters because I've got two daughters. Um, I've been stuck on like two and a half thousand followers forever. So I'm hoping this is going to get me up to five. You need to least. ask your game. <laughs> See if we can get up to five. People. To be fair, I'm quite inconsistent. I sort of go through. I go you through are, because I, I notice when you post. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's yeah, posted. I'm not, this? I'm, not, I'm not daily. Um, I haven't quite got into the, uh, into the rhythm of daily posting yet. And I'm also quite bad at. What I like is I like I do like it when people just like do a day in the life and they're literally yeah, yeah, yeah. you're literally following them around doing that stuff. But the thing is, I always say, "Oh, I'm going to do that tomorrow." And then when I'm actually out doing my thing, I'm so focused on what I'm doing. Mm. The last thing that occurs to me is to like go face the camera and be like, "Yeah, I'm just having a chat with my builder." <laughs> so I'm not as uh, active as some people, but the pictures are pretty. So go and check it out. They are very pretty people. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.